Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Um, in the blink of an eye, have you ever had these moments in life where everything changed very quickly? Um, I, uh, I'm thinking of like the grand moments of life. Back in October of uh, 2009, it'll be seven years uh, this month, my wife and I stood uh, on the beach with dolphins swimming in the backdrop and all of our family and friends gathered together. There was a pastor and um, some of our friends were lined up together and, and then there was Kristen and I. And um, I remember our wedding day a little differently than she does. I remember it was the day where I went from being single to married. She remembers it was the best day of her life. Uh, I remember walking in uh, down, down into the beach area and thinking like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like this is much better than getting married up like in a cathedral and whatever and having a billion people that I don't know come to my wedding. And, and Kristen walked down the aisle thinking like, what am I doing? And um, I remember like our wedding ceremony was probably like 30 minutes. I remember three seconds of it. And afterwards, we were married. Just, just like that. You don't have to raise your hand, but you may have that experience too. I also remember uh, the day that um, it was also in October. October's a big month for Chris and I. I also remember the day when uh, Kristen told me that we were pregnant with our first child. And I remember one moment, not a father. The next moment, everything changed. I, I, I was entered into this like eight-hour fog. I don't remember anything that happened over the next eight hours. I was just delusional like, with, like what just happened in my life that now all of a sudden I'm going to be a dad. And then there's a day when the kid comes. Best day of anyone's life, I would think. Because all of a sudden, you, 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 you don't know what this kid's going to look like. You don't know what's happening. You, you just don't know what you don't know. And all of a sudden, you're holding a child. And I remember that was the day for me that I started driving the speed limit. Now, I remember being in the hospital and uh, cherishing my daughter and holding her in my arms and thinking to myself, I'm a dad and I can't believe this is my responsibility and this feels so right in my heart to do this, but can I do this? Is this something that, I don't know, should I have a child right now? I should, like the nurses are the ones that should be taking care of this kid because I don't know what I'm doing. Anybody have that emotion in the, in the hospital where they're like, I don't want to take this kid home, right? By the time, my friends tell me by the time you have your third or fourth, you're just kind of like, Let's, who cares about the hospital? Let's just have the kid and we'll get done with it. We'll, we'll deliver the kid ourselves, but the first kid, I remember strapping Elon into our, uh, our CRV and, and driving this car in a 35 miles an hour down a 40. And just being suspicious about everybody else around me, like, whoa, stay in your lane, everybody. I got precious cargo here. And my whole perspective on life had changed. And I wonder what that moment is in your life, if you've had that moment when something magical happened and everything else changed. Maybe it was a big break at work, the moment you met your spouse or Maybe you're thinking that this is the year that everything changes because the Cubs will win the World Series and then everything, everything will be different. In a really ridiculous sort of way, that's very true to what I'm trying to say is that uh, these are paradigm-shifting moments where our whole worldview changes. Things, life is not the same as it was just seconds ago. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does one of these moments. He has one of these shifts, these, these, these mind changing, viewpoint-altering shifts that allows us to, to see our world differently. And in Matthew 5, verse 17, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 17 through the end of the chapter. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. Um, but we're going to see Jesus in his definitive message on the kingdom of God. 
And he shifts the paradigm. It's a transition point in the way that we should view the world as, as Jesus shows us, especially through the light of the kingdom as he's brought it into reality. And so I want to start with you in verses 17 through 20. You can take a look at the screen. We'll read this together. You can follow along as I read. It says, do not think, this is what Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. For I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has gathered himself followers in this day. He's gathered a giant crowd, biggest crowd of his life so far. And different sects of Judaism are there, different political parties from within the religions. Religious leaders, no doubt, were there, as well as just regular old run-of-the-mill people of God. They had their religious system, their law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They called this the Torah, and that's the Hebrew word. Torah is the Hebrew word for law. In, in the Jewish days, in, in this system, in their religion, the way God had set it up, God had given them his commands to, to follow in life. He had told them everything that they should know to do, and Every rabbi that would come on the scene would be asked, well, how do you interpret Torah? How do you understand the law of God? They would give their teaching, and their their teaching would be the the judge. It would be the measure by which this rabbi could be trusted or denied. They would teach how God expects this, us as a nation to operate and govern, how he expects us as a people to worship him, how we should handle our sin. And no doubt this is a question that was on the mind of Jesus' listeners in this day as Jesus gives his first pinnacle message. And Jesus answered different from every other rabbi who had ever come on the scene before. The rabbis were there to teach people how to keep Torah. That was their big thing was to keep Torah. How do you keep Torah? How do you keep the law? But Jesus wasn't coming to reinforce just an old system. And he wasn't coming to just get rid of the old system. Instead, Jesus was coming to offer a third way, a a middle way that the Messiah was going to be called to do, and it's that he would fulfill, that he would fulfill the demands of the law and the prophecies of old. He would show the people the complete way to love and know God would be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets through him. And so when Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he's clarifying for all of us that his kingdom mission is rooted in the fulfillment of the plan of God through the law and the prophets. And notice how Matthew 5.18 says, he, he details how specifically this is happening. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I don't know if you've taken Greek or Hebrew. You probably haven't. That's okay. But in iota, it's the smallest marking of the Greek alphabet. The the dot is the smallest marking of the Hebrew alphabet. And 
It's like when we say today, like, you got to cross your T's and dot your I's. Jesus says, even the smallest details of the law are going to be preserved. They're going to be intact until it is time for all of heaven and earth to pass away. Uh, last week, I think it was last Friday, actually, the US, uh, USA Today, on the front page of their, their paper on Friday, uh, published an article that was fascinating to me. Um, they, it was a geek, it was a total geekery. Uh, some scientists in, I think, uh, Sweden had figured out how to digitally unwrap a very ancient document. It was a scroll, they believe. They found this scroll in an En Gedi. It was about uh, from the, the 600s. And the scroll was completely torched, like totally burned, charred, not, not able to recognize it. Actually, they, they thought that they were so worried about unraveling the scroll, they thought to even handle it, it would disintegrate. And so through the marvels of modern technology and 3D scanning and layering and all this stuff that you can go online and read about, um, these scientists were actually able to decipher what was on this charred scroll. They took different CT scans of it, and it's really, really fascinating. And um, this is, I don't know if we have a picture. This is what they found out. It looks like uh, this is the scroll. It's from the 600s. It's totally charred. And what they found out is that this is an exact perfect copy. This happened last Friday, everybody. This is a perfect copy of Leviticus chapters 1 and some parts of chapter 2. One of the uh, researchers, Emmanuel Tov, he's of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, he says that it is in every way identical to the modern manuscripts that we have today. And he says this, this is a quote, he says, it's quite amazing for us that in 2,000 years this text has not changed. So you say, Dan, why do you bring that up? Well, it was because very clearly what Jesus said was his mission to fulfill the law and that not one dot and not one iota would fade away from the law. What Jesus said he would do, he is doing as protecting and guarding and preserving his word throughout generations. And here's what I'm saying. It's right at the heart of what Jesus lays out as his mission, of his life and his standards for his people, right in the heart of all of this is the law. Jesus is right in the heart of the law. That's the first thing I want to show us today, that, that what Jesus is saying from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, is that he is right in the heart of the law and the prophets. This means that he is the one who the law has always pointed to as its end, and he is the one by which all the prophets have foretold of. He is right in the heart of it all, and as such, Jesus affirms the law. And, and listen, this is so important for us, especially if you're a, a Christian of, of, of any time, because I've hear, I hear things today where people say, well, I'm just a New Testament Christian. The Old Testament, that was good for them. That they got their things. But, but I'm a, Jesus totally got rid of that. I'm a new type of Christian. I'm a New Testament Christian. Someone might say that was good for them, but this is now. Jesus isn't in the Old Testament, so I don't bother with it. But listen, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, then the Old Testament is crucial for us to know because it points us towards a more complete understanding about who Jesus is and how we as humanity are prone to wander away from God and what the heart of God desires. See, I think of it this way. I think some people think of the Old Testament as like the trailer that runs before the movie plays. It's like now coming. And then Jesus comes and you just watch the movie. 
Other people think it's like the pregame ceremonies at a football game where everybody's running out and these are the players who are going to be on the field and then someone sings the national anthem. But we're all here for the game. And maybe, maybe I can highlight it one more way. Um, I think some people think about the Old Testament as if it's like that piece of cellophane wrapper that goes around those individually slices of craft cheese. You know those things? They're gross cheese. Like, this is just a preservative. It's just a thing that's helping me get to what's really important. And as long as this cellophane's on this cheese, it'll last for 2,000 years. But once I open it up, I can just throw it away. Am I preaching now or what? This is a good illustration, isn't it? It's cheesy is what it is. Sorry. Sorry. Let's move on. What I want to show you is that Jesus proclaimed that he was at the center of the law, that that the law was important, that the Old Testament is is really important for us as Christians because it shows us who Jesus is. If you want to see how Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, sometime this week, look at Matthew chapter 1 through 4, just that short period. And look at how many times Matthew says in his gospel, this was done to fulfill what was said by the prophets. And as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament teaching, Jesus challenges our understanding of what the law is and what the law does. See, Jesus doesn't let us off the hook when it comes to the law. In fact, his teaching, it amplifies our need for holy living. I mean, look at verse 20 with me. It's going to be any more plain. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, Enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think of the best person that you possibly know in this life. Just think of like the best person that you personally know. Like the the absolute, this is the person who, um, they live their life just so on top of everything. They're kind, they're compassionate, they're selfless. We all have people in this world that we know are great people. Maybe you have a friend who goes out of his way to stick to their convictions, do what is right, maybe even to their own detriment. Um, I don't know what you thought about this person in college or if they get laughed at on the job site. Like, oh, hey, look, here's by the book Bill. Or everybody watch out, Safety Sam's here. They um, are people who can be annoying about following the policies and the procedures, sticking to the letter of the law. And in Jesus' day, these people were the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the people who knew the law so well and they obeyed it to a T. They were serious about the law. They were so serious that they created an additional body of documents, an additional body of law to explain God's law, adding regulations and rules to help Jewish people understand exactly what God meant, as if they were going to be guides to uh, the Jewish people to help them stay in line. And so the scribes would ask the question, you know, if God says, you know, do not do any work on the Sabbath. Well, we believe, you know, the Sabbath is a day that should be holy. And they would come up as like philosophers and say, well, if I'm not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, let's just imagine for a moment. What if I go home today after being here at church? And uh, which, by the way, this applies to everyone but pastors, apparently. But I go home today and I see a piece of trash on my, in my rose garden. And I go and I pick up that piece of trash. Well, did I work? And maybe while I'm down there, I see one of my rose branches is kind of like falling off and it's, it's, it's like dangling. And so I, I just kind of snap it a little bit and I take it and I, I go throw that away too. Did I work? And, and what if, actually while I'm down there and I snap off the branch, I also see another branch that's a little bit too thick for me just to snap. 
for me to, to, to pull off. I, I get my pocket knife out and I start cutting it. Did I do work? And then think, you know, I, I start looking around and I go, man, there's a lot to be done here. And, and I, maybe I'll just get my garden shears and just lop off the next branch because that one is a little bit out of place too. And, and all of a sudden I've got a chainsaw in my hands. At what point did I start working? And since the scribes and the Pharisees were so tedious about the law, so desiring to do the law, they added to the law all these regulations. And here's a real example from folklore. All right, the Jewish tradition says this, that the scribes and the Pharisees actually had these stipulations. They say, well, it's the Sabbath and we raise chickens. Some of you guys raise chickens? Does anybody here raise chickens? I'd like to talk to you. One person in our church does. Uh, so there's a person that raises chickens, and, and it's a Sabbath, and they're making breakfast for their family, and they realize that their chickens laid an egg. But to go out and get the egg, they've got to go collect it. At what point is it okay for us to collect the egg? How many people here think it's okay just go collect the egg? Yeah, right. And here's what the scribes and the Pharisees actually said. They said, if a man raises chickens for the purpose of getting eggs, then to go out on the Sabbath, it would be work for him to go collect the egg, and therefore he should let the egg stay until tomorrow. But if maybe he has chickens for some other reason and is not purposing to have the chickens just for the eggs, he should be fine to go get the eggs. This seems ridiculous to us, doesn't it? This seems absolutely re just insane, but this is no joke. This is how they thought about the law, dissecting it this way and that. And they labored over this because they wanted to be right with God. And Jesus says, listen how condemning this is. After all of that, listen again to these words from Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. These are high demands. In no way is Jesus letting us off the hook. Jesus is trying to tell us that since he came to fulfill the law, then in the kingdom the law is valid, but only in as much as it points to Jesus. And he is the one who is in the heart of it all and that we ought to be following after his law and his way to get into the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus doesn't stop there because if we left it there, we would be incomplete. He gives us a couple examples. He gives us a couple illustrations to help us see that in his kingdom, in this new inaugurated kingdom, in this new world-changing perspective, there are certain things that he wants to show us how they operate. And I want to look, we're going to look at a bunch of these examples, but very briefly. And each one of these, I'm sorry, they deserve their own sermon. Um, we're going to skim through the rest of the passage and look at with me in verse 21. Take the first one. This is what Jesus says. He says, you have heard it said that to those of old that you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says raka, or that means you fool, we think that's what it means. They will be liable to the hell of fire. Just to set this up, Jesus used a formula that was very common by the rabbis in this day. He'd say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and this is their interpreting of the law. And Jesus is going to build his case, not against the law, but against the people's understanding of the law, against how you have heard it said, how you have interpreted it yourself. The people had imagined that God was only concerned with what you did. And to an extent, everybody would agree, what you do is very important, right? Um, certainly condemning. 
And righteousness then was graded on a black and white, yes or no, I did or I did not type of scale. So either you were a murderer or you were not. There was no gray in the, in the question here. And uh, if you were asked this question, you're doing a self-inventory, it's very simple. You go, have I murdered anybody? No? Check. Perfect on the sixth commandment. I got that one done. Maybe today you're here and you need a little bit of an encouragement in church. So I just want to ask you to play along with me. Um, the Jews would not have included any killing in, in warfare or any innocent homicide or any accidental thing like that, but murder, premeditated murder. Anyone here not murdered anybody? No, seriously, raise your hand if you've not murdered somebody. Are you, is, because we, our security team needs to know who has. <laughs> right, so um, good. I feel more safe being with all of you. It's very good. And Jesus, if he would have stopped there, check. Like, we got this. Let's move on. But he doesn't. He says, you have heard it said, but I tell you that anyone who is even angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And here Jesus is expanding the definition of murder to mean that not just what you do, but also what is in your heart. Imagine if you were in the crowd that day and you were listening to Jesus teach. For centuries, your standards have simply been binary, just simply been yes or no, I have or I have not. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts telling you, it's not just about what you do, but it's also about what happens inside of your heart that counts. And so you might be thinking, I'm in the clear, but really Jesus is changing your perspective. Because in a moment, it's all changed and it's showing us that it's not just enough to have your actions clean, but your attitude has to be just as clean. So let's do this again, all right? How many people here have never had an angry thought about another person? And so we all sit in the judgment seat. We are not right in our own hearts. Our attitudes betray us. Our words betray us. If out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus shows us how our mouth condemns us. Anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is a, a strange Aramaic phrase. We don't really know what it means, but it's a four-letter word in Aramaic. It really means you fool or, or you expletive. You say that to your brother out of your heart, that emotion comes, you are just as guilty of sin as the one who had actually killed his brother. See, Jesus shows us this. In the law of Jesus, you must be right in the heart. In the law of Jesus, your heart must be right. Jesus presses the issue further with another commandment from the Ten Commandments. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Let's read verses 27 and 28 together. It says, You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his, what's that word? His heart. And Jesus has moved from the sixth commandment to the seventh. And we're not going to ask for hands here, though we know the rampant problem of sexual sin in our society. Conservative estimates suggest that way more marriages exist with a cheating spouse than we realize. I would give the number, but it's so disheartening. I don't want to encourage it to seem like it's a normal thing. Statistics also tell us that this is predominantly a male problem, but interestingly enough, not by much. That may be surprising for us. People think 
that their mistakes are the problem, that they've committed a mistake in their life. They call it, they don't call it sin, they call it a mistake. And I'm reminded of how Andy Stanley pointed out the truth about infidelity. It's that some people have mistaked their way into spending money on plane tickets and mistaked their way into driving to an airport and mistaked their way into getting on a plane to have this mistake happen to them. See, the reality about infidelity, the reality about an affair is that it doesn't happen by accident. It happens as a result, Jesus says, of lustful intent. And Jesus says, if your righteousness is gonna surpass the scribes and the Pharisees, it begins right in the heart. So even if you never cheat on your spouse, which I pray that's true for you, just like I pray you don't murder anybody. But even if you don't ever do that, Jesus says you can still be condemned by the wicked desires of your heart. It's not enough just to come home from the office every day without doing whatever it is that you think you want to do and just look at your wife and say, hey, I kept it pure for you, baby, today. We're good. If on the inside you're emotionally attaching yourself to somebody else, if on the inside you're wandering with your eyes, if on the inside your, 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 your sexual desires are not being satisfied by your spouse, Jesus says that you must be right in the heart. And if Jesus doesn't have us all in checkmate after just two examples, he presses the issue further. Look with me in verse 33. He says, again, you have, heard it heard, you have heard it said that you shall not swear falsely, that is, take an oath falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Maybe this is a really odd thing to point out. Jesus is talking about these oaths. But in this day that Jesus is talking to you, there are men who would try and um, navigate their business dealings by saying to people, uh, they would call on the name of God from heaven. They would call on the name of God here on earth. Or they would call on Jerusalem and say, by the name of Jerusalem, I promise to deliver to you what I promise to deliver. By the name of God, I promise to do this. They would use it as a means to curry favor with their potential clients. Not unlike today when businessmen say the thing like, hey, you can trust me, I'm a Christian. As if you're trying to just establish some sort of credibility with the people you're trying to do business with. And Jesus says so clearly, if you're so shallow and shady that you need to do business by making an appeal to how good your word is, you are already condemned. If people don't know that your yes is your yes and your no is your no, if you've got to sort of beef it up with all of these things to make you look better, then you're condemned. Because in the kingdom of heaven, to be right in the heart means to be truthful with your words. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, if people don't know that you're telling the truth, Jesus says, you're not right in the heart. God, help our politicians. God, also help those who run businesses. Looking for loopholes in contracts, trying to exploit beneficial business practices. In one way, Jesus asks us, whose business practices are more important to you, man's business practices or God's? 
And then one last example here in verse 38. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This goes beyond the rational, conscious level, and it goes right to our subconscious, to the level of perfection that must exist without us even thinking about it. And our default state um, is true. We don't take an eye for an eye, do we? Um, I've got a, a three-year-old at my home, and I've got an 18-month-old at my home, and they both walk and like their own stuff. And so I see this played out time and time again. There's never been a fair transaction in the Jacobson household. It's never been eye for an eye because human nature is to escalate, right? My daughter loses her stroller to my son. All of a sudden, she's ripping it out of his hand, slapping his bottle away from him, pushing him down. I'm like, Elin, if you want to be biblical Old Testament, you just take the stroller back, eye for an eye. But we don't do this, ever. It's never been eye for an eye with us. We've always, in our twisted hearts, wanted to eye for an eye and then some. And Jesus says, instead of going to the opposite extreme, why don't you let them be evil? And when you are reviled, let them continue to revile. When you are wounded, let them continue to wound. Highlight the fact that the kingdom of God is one of absolute perfection and supernatural power by the fact that you don't respond in the way that men expect you to respond. Jesus shows us that our response to injustice must be love. And the way our life works, even though our subconscious desires need to be pure. And at the end of this passage, look at Matthew 5, 48. Jesus gives this nail in the coffin of our souls. Would you read this aloud with me? Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. While Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom and fulfilling the law, he has not changed the moral demands or the moral standard for the people of God. And in all actuality, this verse reminds me so much of God's command in the Old Testament law found in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. I want to put it on the screen where, where Jesus says this, or God says this. He says, uh, be holy. Do we not have it? We probably don't have it. He says, be holy, Leviticus eleven forty-five. Be holy as I am holy. To be holy simply means perfect, to be set apart, to be unique, to be distinguished, to be cut from the rest. So friends, the question here is very simple today. Are you perfect and holy like God is perfect and holy? Is your righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? And if the examples of Jesus has even scratched the surface of your soul, your immediate response in your heart is no, not even close. Not right in my heart. I'm not perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. How can I stop the very genesis of these sins from surfacing in my heart? How can I be delivered from my anger? How can I be delivered from my lust? How can I keep myself from deceit? How do I keep myself from seeking revenge? And how can I be more righteous than the scribes? and the Pharisees, which leads us to Jesus' point. This is the last main point I have today, is that in Jesus' kingdom, in the kingdom of God, what God demands from us 
he also gives to us. What God demands, he gives. God does not demand what he does not give, but he gives us righteousness. And this is the great news that I think we need to be reminded of today, especially as we look at some very legalistic words from Jesus. As he's trying to show us the very nature of the law is to point us to Jesus by the fact that we cannot fulfill this law and we need Jesus. God demands the law must be done. That's never changing. And yet what changes is the fact that Jesus has come to fulfill it for us. What God demands, he always gives. This is great news for us because it, we realize that Jesus is the remedy to our wicked and debased hearts. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, we can be right in the heart. In fact, if you need righteousness, all you need to do is to ask God by faith to give you righteousness through his son. If you need perfection, ask God to make you perfect through his son. And if you need holiness, ask God to set you apart, to, re, to, to, to make you be born again with a clean and pure heart. This is what Paul makes the case for in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He says this. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified, that is made righteous, by the works of the law. Everybody say, not by the works of the law. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And if God demands righteousness, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. And we see from Paul this happens specifically by faith and only by faith. This is the wonder of our God, that he makes us right in our hearts, that he gives us a right heart because of his son. You see, the kingdom of God is not this kingdom of Try harder to obey. It's the kingdom of righteousness through the extravagant love of God. And this is the point, friends. The law was designed by God in the first place to show us how to completely love God. But what it does is it shows us that we are completely incapable of righteously loving God at all. God demanded righteousness and love and we could do neither. And I wonder if you've kind of looked through this list with me. If why, why does Jesus highlight, why does he start in the sixth commandment? Why does he start in the seventh commandment? Why does he talk about oaths and retaliation? Why doesn't Jesus just say, in my kingdom, watch me, follow me. I'll do all the work for you. Why does he pick out these things? Because all of these examples from Jesus are failures of love. What is anger? but a failure to be loving towards your brother? What is lust than a failure to be truly loving to your spouse? What is an oath than a failure to truly be loving in your business practices? What is retaliation than to be truly unloving of your enemies? And all of these things at the heart of the law, at the heart of what Jesus is trying to get in your heart, is love that you know you are living out the love of God in righteousness when you are loving in your responses to others. So much so that it doesn't even register in your mind that it just flows out of your heart and through your actions. 
Jesus is trying to show us that in his kingdom, it's not about this works-based performance that gets you to be a better person. It's not a fake it till you make it type of thing. This is that Jesus is saying, I need to create inside of you. I need to fulfill the law that you can't fulfill yourself. I need to do this for you so that you can have this type of heart. So that you can be this type of loving person. And what God demands from us, a loving, pure heart, he also gives to us. Friends, you can have a new heart. Amen? You can have a new start. And it starts by you acknowledging the fact that you have not been perfect as God is perfect. That your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that you need Jesus to help you be right in the heart. I think about the example of Jesus who Maybe these words were ringing through Matthew's mind at the end of Jesus' days. As Matthew would have watched Jesus go to the Garden of Gethsemane, as one of Jesus' own friends would have come and betrayed him, as he would have put a kiss on Jesus' cheek and signified him as the one who should be taken. I I wonder if Matthew on this day thought back to what Jesus said. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I said you do not resist the one who is evil. I wonder if in Jesus, or in Matthew's view, as he watched Jesus not resist and be led to a conviction where they framed him in a court of law, where they flogged him as a criminal, where they forced him to carry his own cross up a hill, and they fastened him onto it as the beams that they fit upon his head, a crown of thorns. I wonder if Matthew was realizing that in this new kingdom, what you do is always demonstrating, what Jesus is trying to demonstrate here, and what he does demonstrate is that he fulfills the law with a perfect heart of love. I wonder if Matthew thinks back to these days and thinks back to these teachings on the law and realizes that this is what Christ was doing. He was coming out of love to die so that we might have a heart of love. Oh, how we need Jesus to cleanse us from our unrighteousness, to renew our hearts, to help us love. So friends, thanks be to God, amen, that while the demands of righteousness from us sinful people is what God requires, he also gives us the righteousness through the suffering of his son so that you and I could become right in the heart. And as God goes to work on your heart, as you follow him as your king, may your prayer be that God, you would help me have a righteous and loving heart all the way to the core of who I am. Would you pray with me? Father, these are words that are not easily understood. These are words that are not easily practiced because we are people who are not perfect. Father, we always need you. We so desperately need you. I so desperately need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. God, thank you that you are the point of the law, that you are what the law points to and that you are fulfilling the prophecies of old, that all that has been said throughout the generations and throughout the scriptures is fulfilled throughout you. And Christ, we're grateful that you demand a lot out of your people. But God, we also look at the demands and we go, we cannot do this. So help us be right in our heart. 
pray for the man in here who is struggling with his anger, who so clearly sees a fiery heart that is hurting others. Pray for the man who is addicted to pornography, and in his heart, he knows he's hurting his wife and himself. Pray for the person who's in business who's been acting shady and realizes that their heart's desire is money and not you. Father, I ask for all who have been persecuted, who have been slandered, who have been hurt. God, give us hearts that allow us to purely follow you. God, thank you for allowing us to do this. Thank you that you make it possible. Jesus, we love you so much for what you've done for us. It's in your precious and holy name we pray.